Texas. Oh, from sea to shining sea. From Detroit down to Houston. And New York to LA. Where there's pride in every American heart. And it's time we stand and sing. Oh, and I'm proud to be an American. Where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I'd rather stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt of this land. God bless the USA. All of you have probably not seen that rendition. It hasn't had a lot of views. It is the 4th of July, and I should be heading to the house for a cookout. But obviously, I was um, entrenched in case law because this has to be perfect. Because when you showcase the real enemy that nobody wants to talk about, it has to be perfect. You know, this picture that I have on my screen with a sea of people. How are you the underdog? How is it? So, you know, in 2020, I had, um, um, I think it was July. I'm trying to remember when. I had posted um, myself that I recorded on my phone taking an oath. I think I would like all of you to send uh, the admin profile, Jade 2.0, just record yourself on your phone today. Take that oath and send it to the Jade 2.0 profile on Telegram. And we'll make a big compilation. As many as we can get. We'll make a huge video of how many of us there are. Get your friends, get your family. Let's get it done. It'll probably be one of the longest videos ever. But I'd love to see that. Because I think everyone right now is actually serving their nation. And, and today being the, the day that we declared our independence 246 years ago. But it's 245 for some reason. Um, I guess it's how you count it. Am I 44 or am I 45? I mean, according to insurance standards, uh, in, in September, I'll be 45, right? But um, I thought today I can show you the face of the enemy. I think it's important that we see it so that we understand where it happened, how it happened, and when it happened. So 
I'm going to show you a trailer of something that you've probably may have or may not have seen. It's pretty important that you understand what we the people are really up against and who we are really up against. America was in shock. As we sifted through the rubble in the weeks that followed 9-11, the country was terrified that another attack could occur at any moment from any quarter. The Bush administration quickly began to push through sweeping policy changes. Before anyone had a chance to understand what went wrong, he proposed fixes that went far beyond fighting terrorism. This is what happens when federal legislators respond in panic. Congress had been evacuated because of the anthrax scare, and most of us were hanging around the lawn of the Capitol. We're really out of touch. Yet uh, they felt some desire to rush this bill through. Give us a weekend to read it, and let's take it up Monday morning. Hey, I'll come in and vote at 7 o'clock on Monday morning if it's that urgent. In the Senate, they called it the United in Strengthening America Act. And in the House, they called it the Patriot Act, providing appropriate tools uh, required to intercept and obstruct terrorist acts. And the compromise was to call it both, the USA Patriot Act. But the real purpose behind those names, of course, was to suggest that anyone who would criticize it is unpatriotic, is a traitor. To those who scare peace-loving people with phantoms of lost liberty, my message is this. Your tactics only aid terrorists. When the Patriot Act was first sent to the Congress by the Bush administration, it came with a request that we hold no hearings on it so that there would be no public input or public discourse. That might have even been somewhat acceptable uh, had it been the bill that was uh, considered by and adopted unanimously by the committee, but it wasn't. For six weeks previously, Congress had debated how to address law enforcement needs in the wake of 9-11 and eventually a bill was crafted that had bipartisan support. To have Bob Barr on the far right, Barney Frank, far left, agree was an amazing uh, feat. We came up with a a draft of the bill that, uh, that did have very, very broad support across the Judiciary Committee. Unfortunately, it was then changed uh, in a last-minute draft before it came up on the floor. Sometime very late in the evening after midnight, uh, the John Ashcroft version, Bush White House version, uh, was substituted. The bill was printed at 3.45 a.m. the morning before the vote on the House floor. Can you tell me how many of the 435 members of Congress had a chance between 3.45 a.m and 11 a.m. to read a bill that was 345 pages long. No member of Congress read this legislation before his vote on it. Not a one. This is still warm. It just came off the Xerox machine. This isn't the bill that was adopted by a unanimous 36 vote uh, of Democrats and Republicans of the Judiciary Committee. These are critical issues. This is what we're fighting for. These are our civil liberties. The new bill contained provisions that had been rejected by Congress before 9-11 had even occurred. When I looked at the draft, I said, I've seen this before. Almost all of the provisions represented uh, efforts to expand federal law enforcement power. They used the cover of fighting terrorism 
to really greatly expand federal law enforcement powers. The Patriot Act ultimately passed both the House and the Senate with overwhelming support. This legislation is essential not only to pursuing and punishing terrorists, but also preventing more atrocities in the hands of the evil ones. President Bush quickly signed the Patriot Act into law. It was only the beginning. Some of the worst violations of civil liberties have happened without the input and without the authorization of Congress or the American public. In fact, it's often happened with the discussion and with the approval of a small number of men within the executive branch. These few men have changed the character of America. But have they made us any safer? No, they have not, have they? They haven't made us any safer. Were they pertinent to fighting terrorism that, by the way, they manufactured because now we know that nothing ever happened, uh, you know, uh, during that time. The Declaration of Independence was declaring independence from an institution that did not serve us. A monarchy, something we didn't want, something we felt was not for us. The Constitution and the Declaration of Independence have been really important in our nation. So important that, you know, there was a whole uh, shebang that you're seeing on your screen in the 50s to transfer it to the National Archives. It's the most incredible site that you see just how important those documents are. Yet they have been diluted, defaced. And this is the time we bring it home. I should have done it last year, but you know, everybody has a price. And so you taint, you taint. You know, it's kind of like throwing chum out, waiting for the right moment. And I guess better late than never. It is very important that people understand how their freedoms were removed. It is very important how they see that they are no longer and haven't been in control for a very long time. And then you can ask yourself a lot more questions than that. We're seeing it evolve. We're seeing it happen in front of our eyes. Now you see the parades we used to do so proud of those documents that they have no problem ripping apart. They put them to rest because they took over. The unelected fourth branch of government had our fate sealed in 2001. Took them about 100 somewhat years to get it done, but they got everyone on the same page. Don't read it, just sign it and then read it. Sounds very familiar. Sounds like a dereliction of duty. Sounds like how you put on invisible chains on the hands of man, of every man, woman, and child in this nation, and they don't even think twice about it. People are so busy being in their fifis and not learning history that they don't see it. 
Well, it's time that we rise up. And again, I urge you to send those videos. I think it's at Tainted Jade. It's one of the admins of my main group. Please take a look. Uh, Videotape it on your phone. Doesn't have to be amazing and send it off. I would love to get thousands upon thousands of those videos. And let's rock it out. Now, after this showing, I will be uploading a video, the completed video of our Iwo Jima actions because a lot of states were delayed and this, you know, a lot of people kind of um, don't take on to do things when they say they would um, and others did, but sent it to the wrong place. So we fixed that. So I want you guys to listen to this speech in regards to We're assembled here on this Bill of Rights Day to do honor to the three great documents which together constitute the charter of our form of government. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights are now assembled in one place for display and safekeeping. Here, so far as is humanly possible, they will be protected from disaster and from the ravages of time. I'm glad that the Bill of Rights is at last to be exhibited side by side with the Constitution. These two original documents have been separated for too long. In my opinion, the Bill of Rights is the most important part of the Constitution of the United States. The longer I live, the more I am impressed by the significance of our simple official oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. Perhaps it takes a lifetime of experience to understand how much the Constitution means to our national life. You can read about the Constitution and you can study it in books, but the Constitution is not merely a matter of words. The Constitution is a living force. It is a growing thing. The Constitution belongs to no one group of people and to no single branch of the government. We acknowledge our judges as the interpreters of the Constitution. But our executive branch and our legislative branch alike operate within its framework and must apply it and its principles in all they do. The Constitution and the Declaration of Independence can live only as long as they are enshrined in our hearts and minds. If they are not so enshrined, they would be no better than mummies in their glass cases, and they could in time become idols whose worship would be a grim mockery of the true faith. Only as these documents are reflected in the thoughts and acts of Americans can they remain symbols of power that can move the world. That power is our faith in human liberty. That all freedom-loving nations, not the United States alone, are facing a stern challenge from the communist tyranny. In the circumstances, alarm is justified. The man who isn't alarmed simply doesn't understand the situation or he's crazy. But alarm is one thing and hysteria is another. Hysteria impels people to destroy the very thing they are struggling to preserve. Invasion and conquest by communist armies would be a horror beyond our capacity to imagine. But invasion and conquest by communist ideas of right and wrong would be just as bad. For us to embrace the methods and morals of communism in order to defeat communist aggression would be a moral disaster worse than any physical catastrophe. 
If that should come to pass, then the Constitution and the Declaration would be utterly dead. And what we are doing today would be the gloomiest burial in, history, in the history of the world. But I do not believe it is going to come to pass. On the contrary, I believe that this ceremony here today marks a new dedication to the ideals of liberty. Whether we will preserve and extend popular liberty is a very serious question, but after all, it is a very old question. The men who signed the Declaration faced it. So did those who wrote the Constitution. But each succeeding generation has faced it. And so far, each succeeding generation has answered it in the affirmative. I'm sure that our generation will give the same affirmative answer. So I confidently predict that what we are doing today is placing before the eyes of many generations to come the symbols of a living faith. And like the sight of the flag in the dawn's early light, the sight of these symbols will lift up their hearts so they will go out of this building helped and strengthened and inspired. See how easy they forget. Massachusetts, February the 6th, 1788. Maryland, April 28th, 1788. Well, North Dakota isn't on there because they weren't officially a state until the 2000s, believe it or not, due to some discrepancy on their filing. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights is a common phenomenon in this country. Americans like to pay homage to these great documents, just as other people in other parts of the world like to pay homage to their kings, our rulers. A stranger in our midst, ignorant of our institutions, might think it odd that we would wax so eloquent over some ancient scraps of paper. But the fact is, these papers are not historical heirlooms. They are the living organic law of the land. We've gone on putting them to work, and they have thus far worked well. As this nation has gained maturity, so has it gained new insight and formed fresh, fresh aspirations for the work of its creators. We have need of this vision today. Ours has always been a faith based on reason. This, then, is the time for a new and fiercer faith in the Declaration and the Constitution, including the Bill of Rights. This is a time for sharpening to the glistening point the aspirations which we have for them. We have the verdict of history thus far, to prove the strength of our institutions and to show their worth in man's struggle to realize the highest hopes of man. A people who with great pride trace their political ancestry to the men who created these immortal documents should seek to emulate their valor and their vision we can afford to do no less. Those living documents, those living documents that they've stowed away to represent our nation, 
are being peed all over. They're taking, <laughs> they're taking the spot. But how? How are they doing this? Well, we all know that the Patriot Act was unconstitutional. And I think it's important that we revisit some questions that were arising at the time. PBS actually did a piece, and I want us to see it. It's very important that we see it. This is another bill that they signed and didn't read. I want you guys to pay attention. This is a fairly new agency that has been around for 20 years. 20. Yet they have their fingers in everything. Just what these spying powers, powers mean, mean and what might happen if they expire. James Bamford is author of The Shadow Factory, and he has chronicled the national security complex for decades. And Michael Mukasey is the former attorney general under President George W. Bush. Gentlemen, we welcome both of you, Thank you to the program. Mr. Mukasey, let me start with you. You just heard uh, Lisa Monaco's arguments for why the uh, administration wants these provisions to continue with some modification, as you heard. What's your reaction? My reaction is that I'm with her on the continuation. I'm uh, where I have a problem is the modifications that they've agreed to. And um, and spell that out. Sure. Um, what they've done is to say that the government can't continue to keep these sim simply lists of numbers with no identifying information as to the caller uh, or the or or the or the content, uh, but rather have the 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 carriers keep that information. The, the metadata is simply uh, a record of a number that's called, a number that calls it, and the length of the call and the date of the call. That's all that the metadata consists of. There's no content and there's no identification of people. What that can be used for is that if a suspect number is identified and a court concurs, then they can run that number against this database of numbers to figure out whether a terrorist has either been called by or has called a number in the United States. That's the only purpose that it's put to. That's the only way that it's used. Um, that information in the hands of the government is readily accessible. If you rely simply on the carriers to hold it, then uh, there's no compulsion in this legislation for them to keep it at all. And in fact, it's very easy to imagine them competing in eliminating or scrubbing this information in short order or in offering plans that don't require them for business reasons to keep but, the metadata. But as we heard James Bamford, uh, Lisa Monaco acknowledge there is criticism of this out there. The president has decided uh, to make this modification to, to say you have to go to a court if you want to get access uh, to this phone metadata. Your concern is that is that even that is 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 not enough of a of, of, a, of a way of protecting people's privacy. <clears throat> I think there's really two issues here. One of them is uh, whether it's useful or not. Uh, you've had uh, the courts, first of all, declare it illegal. Uh, Judge uh, Leon in the uh, U.S. District Court in Washington called it uh, Orwellian. Um, so is it legal? Uh, the courts are saying it's illegal. The appeals court said it's illegal. Second of all, is it useful? Uh, you've had the president's review board come out and say that there was nothing useful that's ever come out of it. Uh, the bipartisan privacy uh, group came out just a few months ago and said that they've never found anything useful that's come out of it. And if you look back, the NSA actually had another program. It was the identical program, except for it was for uh, email. 
uh, everybody who sent an email would be uh, uh, the who you sent it to and, and where it came from and so forth would be a record would be kept on it. They got rid of that because it was useless. And I think they should do the same thing with this program. Michael Mukasey, why isn't it, uh, given what uh, what James Bamford is spelling out, uh, that there are real questions, uh, as he was suggesting, about what's any value to this program, why continue it? Well, um, it <laughs> it is not it is not at all useless. In point of fact, um, it has been it is used to assemble intelligence. It's not a crime solving tool principally, although it has solved crimes, including exposing the Zazi plot to blow up the New York City subways. But if you're asking the question of how many plots it stopped, then you're asking the wrong question. You should be asking what's the value of the bits of intelligence that are gathered and used with other bits of intelligence that are available uh, to, to, to build um, a, a picture of what it is that we're looking for and of various uh, circles of, of, uh, of plotters and, and networks of plotters. As far as courts having found it unlawful, the fact is that the FISA court has considered this more than 40 times um, and has found it lawful each time. The fact is that there are district judges that have found it lawful. There's one court of appeals that acted, but there are two other courts of appeals that have the issue before them that haven't and, spoken. Well, let me and let me put that to you, James Bamford. If I mean, given what the what the courts have said, given the question he just raised about the ability this gives the government, uh, whether it's the metadata or or the metadata with the court permission, um, it's it's something that that is needed to fight terrorism. Everybody that's looked at this has said that it's virtually useless. Uh, the NSA originally came up and said there were something like 44 different areas that we were able to stop terrorists. It came down to one incident that uh, ended up being useful. And what that was, was finding some taxi driver in San Diego that sent $8,000 to some group in Somalia. That was the only thing they've been able to show since 2001 that this program has produced in terms of intelligence. So, no, it isn't. And then the, the second issue is uh, uh, the problem of trust from the American public. Uh, we've had the warrantless eavesdropping program that was illegal, a violation of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, the only way we found out about it was through whistleblowers. So the same thing with this program here was only Edward Snowden that we ended up knowing about this. So I think there's a lot of legitimacy to people being very skeptical about the government's claiming that this is so valuable. Michael Mukasey, what about that, the question of trust? Well, the question of trust, um, there are 33 people who have access to this. Um, they have access to it only under the observation of what you might call a Madisonian trifecta, a court, their own, the executive supervision that they have, and the oversight of at least two committees of Congress. That's all three branches of government. The information itself, again, consists only of numbers. It doesn't consist of any other identifying information. And there's nothing that can be done unless and until um, a number, uh, a suspect number triggers the use of it. So well, let me just give you the final word, James Manford, on this. And, and again, we should point out the president has backed off from the original uh, provision, which was collecting all metadata on all phone records. Yeah, I mean, the USA Freedom Act, I think, is a vast improvement. Um, the question is whether uh, it's a vast improvement enough. And I think that's the issue that's being debated right now. And I think the, uh, the question is whether it's either that or nothing. And I think that's what's going to be decided on Sunday. James Bamford, Michael Mukasey, we, we thank, thank you, you both. All right. So as you can see, 
Uh, this was a problem being discussed a while back. Obviously, a lot of us may have been paying attention. Other of us may have not. But the Department of Homeland Security is everywhere. When you think of Homeland Security, you think of TSA, right? But what is it really? I found this explainer video that may assist in some way. But again, it was under fear that they created it. And now the DHS is nuts. But then we also have postal service agents. Yeah. Remember, they arrested uh, Steve Bannon. Do you remember that? Do you remember how postal agents arrested Steve Bannon? It's really bizarre, but I want you guys to think about it for a second. 9-11 happens, right? Where not one, but two planes apparently uh, struck the towers and then building seven supposedly was hit too. But that was proven in March 20, on March 25th of 2020 that that was not true. That was a controlled demolition. Therefore, either there be planes or no planes, regardless, this was a fix. The Pentagon exploded, right? Right? All this stuff happened and our freedom disappeared instantly because we panicked. It was the perfect storm to get people to hand over their rights to privacy and their rights to be free. See, that's when it happened. As I said, I've been blowing the whistle for a very, very, very long time. And since my job was to convince nations to accept our ways and sell them what we wanted them to implement, I can tell you this was, this was done in a very genius fashion. But at the same time, it was done in a way that uh, just made people look stupid. So easily handing down uh, their rights without question to unelected people. Now you're going to say, no, we, we talked about it. For those of you that were around there, you would have been like, no, we told them. But what did you do? Nothing. Because you couldn't do anything because you didn't have the information and you were still drinking the Kool-Aid of the 80s and the 90s that the government wants to protect you. When do you stop being free? Let's think about it. Let's think about it. So they bought some slaves off the river Niger, hence why they use that derogatory term from their own chiefs. They handcuffed them and they sold them as workers, kind of like applying to HR, but with no choice of where you go. They were property, but that property had some bed. They had food. They were able to procreate. And all they did was work all freaking day so they can have a place to sleep and some food in their tummy. Kind of sounds you're going to own nothing and love it. Right? Kind of sounds like that. The minute you stop being free is the minute that someone can control you. The minute someone can tell you no power for you, no internet for you, no phone for you, no money for you, no house for you, no food for you, kind of sounds like there's only one area of focus here. While the FBI is corrupt and they were law enforcement, there is a big chunk of it that's not so corrupt. While the CIA is corrupt and knows about it, there's a chunk of it that's not. The NSA corrupt and knows about it. There's a big chunk that's not. 
See, there's big chunks. There's no underdogs. The majority are not. But when we're talking about Department of Homeland Security, the whole motherfucking thing is corrupt. Every single faction of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely frustrated because I've been mulling around case law, case law that one of the attorneys just emailed me saying, we can't do this. And it's like, no, there's a workaround. I was there at 3 a.m. You know how impossible it is to like sue vaccine companies? It's also almost impossible to sue the government. You know, and, and these are big attorneys. We're not talking people that posture and pretend they're for America. We're talking big ass attorneys and they're all struggling. All of them. But it is what it is. If there's no door and no window, you just bust that shit up in some certain way. You circumvent it. There's always a way. God always has a path. And it's never an easy path. It's probably the most simplest path. Simple in regards to seeing it, but difficult. And and this is it. Nothing is impossible when it comes to God. <laughs> and that's the thing. People lack the faith. Oh, well, I got to pay this. Your God is so awesome. He could just manifest that shit. I got to do this. Your God is so awesome. He's going to take care of that too. I have to do this. Your God is so awesome. He's going to do that too. See, People that have real faith know that God has a way. I guess maybe tomorrow he'll help. (laughs) Uh, We'll see. We'll see. But let's continue on this. Let's see exactly the date and how it happened. But first, first, let's see the history of this manufactured branch by a very corrupt government. It's a process began that would shift a massive amount of power into the hands of a chosen few. A restructure of the federal government of a size that hadn't been seen since FDR's New Deal in the 40s. October 8th, 2001, saw the creation of the Office of Homeland Security. Today, I sign an executive order creating a new Homeland Security office. That temporary office would one day become the Department of Homeland Security as we know it today. The months after the 9-11 attacks were an understandably strange time. People were scared. The American government saw that fear and an opportunity. I asked the Congress to join me in creating a single permanent department with an overriding and urgent mission, securing the homeland of America and protecting the American people. With the department's creation, signed into law by Bush on November 25th, 2002, his twin daughter's birthday, weird present, 22 agencies funneled into DHS. Everything from disaster response to nuclear material monitoring to disease research labs to customs and immigration. Funding for these agencies more than doubled in the two years following the department's formation. So what did they do with all that money and control? Obviously, we can't cover all 20 years in this video, but let's look at a bit of how each president wielded his control. Today, we're taking historic action to defend the United States and protect our citizens against the dangers of a new era. 
With my signature, this act of Congress will create a new Department of Homeland Security. Operations officially began in January 2003, with most of the department's component agencies transferring to DHS on March 1st. The leader was Tom Ridge, who'd been a congressman and was once governor of Pennsylvania. At the time, he was asked which agencies the new department would be taking control of. It's really what is not going in, uh, just about all the major components. Uh, uh, the Customs move in, TSA moves in, Secret Service, Coast Guard. Bush's DHS was marked by an increase in law enforcement power all the way down to local police. Here's Nicole Wen, an associate professor of social foundations of education at the University of Illinois, Chicago. His approach to domestic security issues at the time was to imbue the police with all kinds of police powers, right? To really um, give unfettered um, access to communities, to intelligence gathering um, and the like in the name of national security. So at that time you saw, for example, New York City police officers just going into Muslim communities and just mapping bars, sports venues, uh, who is going where, when. So it was this sort of blanket surveillance um, operation that was really invasive in, in going into communities, going into mosques, uh, going into community spaces under the guise of, of national security. One early DHS implementation was the National Security Entry-Exit Registration System, also known as Special Registration, or NSEERS. Launched in 2002, the program required non-citizen men of certain ages to be registered with immigration offices upon entering the country. 24 of the 25 countries listed as part of special registration were Muslim majority. A year into the program, 138,000 people were registered with NSEERS. Over a decade later, by December 2016, there were no known terrorism convictions as a result of the program. A lot of these draconian measures were a waste. As Bush's tenure in the White House came to a close, the House Committee on Homeland Security reported that DHS had overseen almost $15 billion in failed contracts. In our work regarding DHS's contracting practices, common themes and risks have emerged, primarily the lack of a sound game plans, the dominant influence of expediency, poorly defined requirements, and inadequate oversight that contributed to the ineffective or inefficient results and increased costs. The legacy George W. Bush left was one of empowering law enforcement, racial profiling, and spending billions of dollars on programs with inconsequential results. But with a new supposedly progressive president, would all of that change? No. The Obama presidency ushered in a new era of oversight, one of increased funding and domestic surveillance operating on the idea that law enforcement could work together with communities to prevent violence. Let's look at Christmas 2009, when an Al-Qaeda operative got on a plane with a bomb sewn into his underwear but failed to properly detonate the explosive. If he had been successful, the 290 people on board would have perished. The only thing that saved them was Al-Qaeda's own incompetence. But it was DHS's incompetence that even allowed him to be on that plane. DHS's counterterrorism efforts failed in this instance for the very reason the department was created in the first place, an interagency failure to communicate. In response, President Obama increased the surveillance and security efforts that had already failed. Immediately after the attack, I ordered concrete steps to protect the American people. New screening and security for all flights, domestic and international. More explosive detection teams at airports. More air marshals on flights. Updated our terrorist watch list system, including adding more individuals to the no-fly list. TSA is requiring enhanced screening for passengers flying into the United States from or flying through nations on our list of state sponsors of terrorism or other countries of interest. In 2011, DHS released a strategic implementation plan, 
which was designed to counter violent extremism and promoted community partnerships with law enforcement. Around the same time, the Countering Violent Extremism Grant Program, or CVE, was launched, providing funding to state and local communities to prepare for, prevent, and respond to emergency threats from violent extremism. Guess who they focused on? Here's Harsha Pandaranga, a lawyer and legal expert at the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. They almost exclusively focused on Muslims. So, for example, there would be uh, outreach to a Somali-American community under the theory that people in that community were more vulnerable to recruitment by certain terrorist organizations, especially kids, right? But I think when you tailor a program that way, what you're really doing is saying that, you know, just because of where you come from, uh, you're going to be more susceptible to recruitment by terrorists. You know, growing a long beard or, you know, becoming more serious or going to mosque more frequently, which are obviously just uh, uh, signs of religious activity. The concern for me is that the vagueness and breadth of these indicators means that it is a way to uh, point to something that sort of might justify your preconceived biases about who um, who is dangerous. We as a country learned in early 2021 who the real danger was. Far-right, white supremacist, homebred terrorists. But those aren't the people being asked to police their own communities. More recent iterations led by DHS, like countering violent extremism, asks ordinary people to, through the course of their, you know, daily work with young people, with communities, with clients, to identify people who they think are potential terrorists, and then again, to report them to law enforcement. These are supposed to be trusted adults, people that you're supposed to be able to seek help from, that you should be able to go to a therapist's office and talk about your experiences with war, with displacement, and so on, without fear that that would be a pretext to refer you to, to law enforcement. Really, that see something, say something, that's the organizing frame that's calling on the public to participate in the making of national security. There is no social science that proves that any experiences or indicators are warning signs um, of you know, future terrorist activity. Despite no evidence to suggest that behavioral detection efforts conducted either by the government or by your fellow American actually prevent terrorism, DHS launched in 2011 the Screening of Passengers by Observation Techniques Program, or SPOT, within TSA. Like CVE initiatives, SPOT operates on the theory that observable behavioral and appearance indicators can be used to detect terrorists and other threats to aviation before they act. A 2010 Government Accountability Office study revealed that TSA trained and deployed about 3,000 behavioral detection officers, some of whom were private contractors, to 161 airports nationwide at a cost of over $200 million per year. None of these contracts led to measurable terror prevention outcomes. So the question left was, if DHS still can't stop terrorist attacks, what is its purpose? To answer that question, the government upped the department's funding once again. President Obama left behind a structure upon which Islamophobia and racism could be expanded and then handed it to this guy. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Enter the Trump era, during which overt Islamophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment became explicit and commonplace. In the first year of Trump's presidency, the number of immigration arrests surged by 40% as a result of a string of executive orders targeting undocumented immigrants. Then, of course, there was Trump's infamous Muslim ban, a 2017 executive order that reduced the number of refugees allowed into the U.S. and specifically banned travel from countries with large Muslim populations. In addition to the Muslim ban, Trump inflated Obama-era counter-terrorist programs. A 2018 study by the Brennan Center for Justice found that at least 85% of CVE grants and over half of CVE programs explicitly targeted minority groups. 
The study also revealed that 14 of the 26 DHS-funded programs targeted schools and students. In 2020, DHS spent millions responding to racial justice protests, the very same protests that were responding to over-policing, deploying federal protective service agents to areas with particularly high numbers of protesters, despite most demonstrations being nonviolent. He oversaw an increase in DHS funding from $40 billion to $52 billion over the course of his presidency. In October 2020, DHS finally identified white supremacists as the deadliest domestic terror threat in the United States, with far-right American extremists making up 90% of domestic terrorist plots and attacks in 2020. But a shift in focus on white supremacists didn't come until Biden took office. In response to the deadly January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, the incoming Biden administration stepped up efforts to combat white supremacist terrorism. Like his predecessors before him, Biden increased DHS's funding once again. Many Americans welcomed Biden's new focus on white supremacy within DHS without realizing the larger implications more funding will have on Muslim, Black, and Brown people living in the United States. There's a continuity across presidential administrations. And I think the continuity shows us that it's not about tinkering with programs. It's not about tinkering with funding streams. It's actually getting to the root of what justifies the Department of Homeland Security, this idea around national security, the homeland, terrorism, um, that, that we can somehow go into communities and find future threats that don't exist anywhere. And so I think unless we get to sort of the root of where our desire for DHS comes from, we're going to just continue to see these different iterations um, that are responsive to whatever historical moment we're in. Nearly 20 years later, we don't yet know what President Biden's DHS will look like or if he will address the ongoing issues that led to DHS's creation in the first place, namely the lack of transparent and timely interagency communication. We can, however, see that Biden has no plans to significantly reduce the presence and power of the Department of Homeland Security. And until the American people challenge the powers that be, Muslims and people of color will continue to be targeted by a government department that has yet to prove that it is keeping the homeland secure. Under the guise of security, they take away your rights. Under the guise of health and safety, they take away your rights. Under the guise of all these things, they take away your rights. And see, the question you should be asking yourself is, how did it happen like this? How did we allow this to happen? And again, it's all about what we allow to happen. Because we had faith in a system, because we were brought up knowing that this system was in place with checks and balances. But when there's an agency that's unchecked, an agency that you don't elect, an agency that is appointed by people that are elected, which, by the way, like I said, there are documents from the CIA red papers that claim that Bush had decided that Obama was the better candidate. McCain pretending to fight. Romney pretending to fight. Phew. We almost thought that was a, we were going to have a tie. Phew. <laughs> While they're testing everything. Sharing all your information across the nation. Every single facet of your life at the fingertips of almost anybody. And yet, for some reason, people believe that, uh, well, you know, they're free. You're not. You're celebrating independence that was taken away from you 
on paper contradicting the papers that keep you free. Maybe that's why they have them stored away. And now Nara is going private. So now what happens to those documents? Oh, that's right. Weren't they bidding on it to sell it? So weird. We had a parade to save it. And then people were bidding on it, right? In an auction to fucking buy it. That's how precious it is. (laughs) That's because it means nothing now. Because the only way it means something is by people standing up for it, taking an oath to protect it. As it said, standing up for it and saying, you know what? I'm going to fight with every last breath I have because I believe in what my nation was created to stand for. You know, obviously. Muslims. Well, because that's where they paid mercenaries. Mercenaries, they go to the highest price. I mean, Patrick Berge is just one of the faces that you could see. Goes to the highest bidder. Sometimes you luck out because maybe your bidder is poor. So now they're coming after churches too. Who? The same organization. Joseph Nauman from the Archdiocese of Kansas City. Your Excellency, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Um, The man who was arrested and charged with attempted murder said that he targeted Justice Kavanaugh in part because of the Supreme Court draft leak opinion uh, regarding abortion. Meantime, the Department of Homeland Security has warned that faith-based institutions may become targets once the Dobbs decision is officially announced. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Well, it's a it's a true tragedy that, and and I think part of it is the irresponsible language that the president and other uh, leaders in the legislature and the Congress are using uh, to try to whip up uh, people into a frenzy over the fact that, <laughs> I mean that the irony of this all is that they're they're trying to protect the violence against the unborn uh, and they're and they're encouraging people to take violent actions against judges and places of worship and crisis pregnancy centers I think they really should um, first of all temper their their language in the way that they're trying to I think really create uh, an atmosphere where violence could very likely happen. Yeah, uh, I mean, things really are getting to a boiling point, it seems. Um, what do you think can and should be done? I know you, you mentioned the, their talk, um, the things that they're saying, um, but what else do you think can be done to kind of bring down the temperature? And, and also, how do you think faith leaders can help? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we always have to pray and pray, you know, that the the Lord will lead us as faith leaders, but also lead our nation um, uh, to a sense of responsibility of protecting both women and children. And so I think an important thing that we we can do as faith leaders is try to increase our support for those that are in a difficult or crisis pregnancy. In my work in the pro-life efforts and particularly with post-abortion ministry, my experience is that so many of women that I've talked to that regret their abortion, they didn't really feel like they had a choice. It's it's interesting that the other side promotes abortion as being pro-choice, but 
most of these women didn't feel like they had a choice. And so here in Kansas, one of the things that we're doing as an archdiocese is we've created a website and we have public, uh, we take out commercials on uh, cable television and commercial television, inviting anyone that's in a difficult pregnancy uh, to take advantage of the pregnancy resource centers and many other services that are available and to help women know that there's a whole community that wants to wrap around them with support and to help them, not just through the pregnancy, but we want the mother and the child both to thrive. And, and you know, I want to talk a little bit more about that, uh, Your Excellency. I mean, how important is that to to be able to provide the resources in the community to help women who are facing, you know, an unplanned pregnancy and maybe in a crisis situation? Yeah, I think this is exactly what we should be doing as a church. I think we have a responsibility to do this, but I think as a society, we should be doing this as well, not encouraging women to destroy the life of their child, but helping them and supporting them if they feel they're in a difficult pregnancy and helping them make uh, choices and a decision that they they can live with and the and the their child will also be able to live with. And our, our pregnancy resource centers, I think are one of the, the beautiful things that the Lord has brought out of this tragedy of legalized abortion. And there are so many of them and so many people that are willing to, to help provide, if it's medical needs, if it's uh, financial needs, if it's job opportunities, education, um, and to walk with these mothers for years uh, to help them and their child to, to thrive in this world. So that's the real solution to the crisis pregnancy. It's not offering them uh, the opportunity to, to end the life of their own child. Uh, you know, quickly, I'm wondering, Your Excellency, you know, when the official opinion comes out from Dobbs, um, um, are you all planning to do anything differently um, to kind of ramp up services um, to help out these women who may be in a crisis situation who are pregnant and need help? Yeah, more than two years ago, the Bishops' Conference initiated this program called Walking with Moms in Need, which was an effort to make every parish and every diocese aware of the resources that are available. And, you know, sadly, many people just don't know the resources that are already there. And so part of it is to communicate those resources better, but also we're looking for where there might be gaps in those resources. And then as a church, we're trying to fill those gaps. I know here in, in the Kansas City metropolitan area, one of the things that we felt we needed additional resources and was for residential housing uh, for women and their children that are in a difficult pregnancy. So, uh, yeah, I think we, we need to try to increase those resources, but there are many out there already that already are prepared to help and can solve most of the issues that I think um, those in a difficult pregnancy are facing. Well, there are people in difficult pregnancy situations. I'll, I'll give you one story, uh, real and factual. So in 2019, I was living in the state of North Dakota, right? 
And my daughter was attending middle school. Obviously, she had to leave because, you know, law enforcement did their job and hid sealed unredacted reports that taunted my child. But it was at that time in, I think it was at the end of November or something like that, or maybe it was January of 2020. I'm trying to remember. Phoebe had told me that one of her classmates in middle school was pregnant. I was just like, what? And and I'll tell you where the root hits. And uh, obviously, um, you know, that's a big deal, right? When a 14-year-old is pregnant, like who did it? Another kid. But here's what happens. Children are so eager to go get jobs. We as parents send them off to work. And I noticed this even with my eldest. And I'll tell you why I'm against my children actually having jobs uh, in the workforce under the age of 18. So, for example, my eldest, when she uh, started working, she was only allowed to work when she turned 18, right? And even though she had sworn into the military before that, <laughs> like right before, like a little bit, um, you know, she wasn't allowed to go to the workforce because the minute she did, it was a 30-something-year-old man that was taking her out on a date or, you know, whatever, and I see this all the time. The young kids, they go to coffee shops, uh, you know, Walmart, and these men prey on them and tell them how amazing it is. Well, her friend got pregnant. She didn't have an abortion, which is a glorious thing. The question is like, who did it? What? It's none of my business. Uh, she now has a, you know, bouncing 18-month-old child, um, almost two years old now, and she's 16. She's the same age as my daughter. Actually, she was younger because Phoebe started school late. So she's about 15, turning on 16, and she already has a two-year-old child. And this all stemmed from someone she met at work, working as a bagging clerk or something. And this is the problem. Predators will prey on the children and get them pregnant. I'm talking about teen pregnancies, young pregnancies. It is um, important and imperative that parents embrace the children when they have this and protect them. You know, my kids can't say, I'm like, Phoebe got a car, right? But it's like, she can't get a license. Well, now she's getting her permit and she has to wait to get her license, which is great for me because she'll be closer to adulthood when she can drive on her own. I know it sounds really bad. Why are you doing this? But I know why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I am terrified of her interacting with predators. It was evident with my eldest who's super smart. And it's evident with all these young teens that suddenly lose their mind after they get a job. I mean, you can pay your kids if you can afford to, to do things, right? Don't send them out there with predators. Help them. At the age of 18, legally, you can't hold them down. But up until then, it is our job as parents to send them off into the workforce with a clean criminal record, not, you know being pregnant or having a baby, right? Because that takes away their youth, right? And values. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, see it 
as no big deal. This is why I, I, I don't understand these um, internship programs that middle schools and high schools have with like really big influential companies because unfortunately they prey on them. And if your daughter is a pretty girl or your boy is a pretty boy, forget about it. There's going to be someone rich, powerful, or with a way of words that will fill in and, 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 and hone in on their susceptibility. Now, having said that, as you notice, the Department of Homeland Security ha- is everywhere. They deal with everything and they nominate people threats to what authority, the authority that Bush gave them in this bill. I urge all of you while you're grilling or while you're cooking or digesting, please pull up the bill and read it carefully. Take a look at what it says and what it does. This is very, very important because people are being labeled as domestic terrorists. They're being put on lists. They're being put that, this, that, you know, and now that everyone saw that that movie, uh, what was the movie? Oh, gosh with Tom Cruise, where they're predicting crimes. Now they're like, yeah, we're predicting crimes. I told you that anyway, look it up. Bill Barr was the one that signed off on that shit, right? Give some, you take some. See, what people don't seem to understand is President Trump loves his country so much. And he, oh my gosh, the more I think about it, the more it breaks my heart. He actually believed that there were people out there that were looking to help their country selflessly because they love their country too. And that's not the case. I've fallen victim to that. People claiming their principles and bullshit when they have no principles. That's what demons do. They inch in and they take it over. But let's see that fateful day. That fateful day that it was signed while we get into more things of how today our Independence Day is actually a remnant of something we want and they've taken away. We got the new world order going. The Homeland Security Act of 2002 takes the next critical steps in defending our country. The continuing threat of terrorism, the threat of mass murder on our own soil will be met with a unified, effective response. Dozens of agencies charged with Homeland Security will now be located within one cabinet department with the mandate and legal authority to protect our people. America will be better able to respond to any future attacks, to reduce our vulnerability, and most important, prevent the terrorists from taking innocent American lives. The Department of Homeland Security will have nearly 170,000 employees, dedicated professionals, who will wake up each morning with the overriding duty of protecting their fellow citizens. As federal workers, they have rights, and those rights will be fully protected. And I'm grateful that the Congress listened to my concerns and retained the authority of the President to put the right people in the right place at the right time in the defense of our country. I have great confidence in the men and women who will serve in this department and in the man I've asked to lead it. As I prepare to sign this bill into law, I'm pleased to announce that I will nominate Governor Tom Ridge as our nation's first Secretary of Homeland Security. (laughs) 
Now, for those of you that like to do homework, I highly suggest you delve into Tom Ridge. Now, before we get to the next portion of it, I want to ask you a question and I'll check the chat while um, this song is playing, right? While we have our intermission, I'm going to check the chat. Here's the question that I have for you. What was the most insane push that the Democrats did? In, in essence, was it that they screamed abortion, infrastructure, or um, COVID? Seriously, in legislation, which one do you believe was the most spoken of? So infrastructure, abortion, or COVID? I'll look at the comments while we listen. First kick I took was when I hit the ground And a black dog that's been beat too much To expand half your life Just covering up now Born in the USA I was born in the USA Born in the USA Caught in a little hometown jam So they put a rifle in my head Sent me off to a foreign land To go and kill yellow Born in the USA Born in the USA Born in the USA Born in the USA Come back home to the refinery I remember, sir, if it was up to me, I went down to see my VA man. He said, son, don't you understand? I had a brother, I guess, fighting on the vehicle. They're still there He's all gone He had a woman He loved inside I got a picture of him In her arms now Born in the USA And Huh while that is supposed to inspire us to be all for America, the more we think about how we are no longer in our America, it is their America, we seem to miss the mark. So I'm going to share with you something. Um, let's see if I can open it up. 
I'm going to show you something that not a lot of people have seen. All right, let's see if you can see it. Wow. You get to see all the shit I'm working on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And that's just one, right? But I'm going to go through this with you for a second. This is a document indicating the Department of Homeland Security General Services Administration and Critical Infrastructure Partnership. <laughs> this is from a long, long time ago. It's not from now. But here's the funny part. I want you guys to take a look at this portion right here. Government facility sector. CI stands for critical infrastructure. Hold on. I think I went up. Yeah. So it includes general use of office building and special use military installation, embassies, courthouses, national laboratories, and other critical structures. Critical, critical. What does critical mean? We have to define that, but whatever. In addition, the sector includes cyber elements that contribute to the protection of sector assets, as well as individuals who perform essential functions or processes uh, or possess tactical, operational, and strategic knowledge. The government facilities sector has two subsectors, education facilities, monuments, and icons. This is the critical infrastructure sector, which elections is designated. So basically, your elections had nothing to do with Homeland Security officially at all. None whatsoever. But... They fit in this thing as a government facility sector, right? So therefore, now Homeland Security is in charge of all of your elections. I want you guys to pay attention to this, okay? Critical infrastructure in which elections are designated. Pay attention. Tell me how your elections fit into this. Well, I don't know. We use office buildings like county places to count. I don't know. Maybe we use um, schools and stuff. Wait. Oh, shoot. Yeah, that's how far of a stretch it went that they actually said that. They considered it an educational facility since your elections are being done. The partner with DHS, that subsector, is the Education Department Office. Elections represent a similarly relevant sector to the education facility sector. So they were making the claim and argument how to ensure that they can legally place your elections under Department of Homeland Security and under the Patriot Act. Yeah, that's what they did. See, they made it so that the verbiage says what they want. So, you know, when, when I went down there in 2020, I already knew the culprit. I couldn't talk about it because I had committed a fucking crime, right? And there wasn't, there was a statute of limitations. I thought it was 10 years. Apparently it's five, right? And I couldn't talk about it. And I had to keep my mouth shut and say just enough because they're not going to relinquish power. We're seeing people that are supposedly fighting for us, trying to claw onto some sort of power. 
We have losers thinking that, oh, well, you know, it's over. At least I can do good in, in this much, just little dosages so I look like a patriot, but I'm not really doing a lot. What you don't understand is, is that they planned this. What you don't understand, and well, you're seeing it now, is that you're not in control of your elections at all. In 2002, what happened? Homeland Security, HAVA Act, fucking the EAC was being discussed to be created. That was the final blow. Take away your voice at the ballot box. Why can't people see it? I don't care what denomination you are, uh, left, right, upside down. I don't care if you sleep with one or many, same sex or opposite. I give zero fucks. But what we should all come to agreeance is, is that you are no longer free when your government counts your votes. And it's people you do not elect. So when people are talking, you know, when I went down there with the certifications, I was really hoping that they'd look and say, let's go. No, they were all fixated on other things. Other things that were more tangible and more digestible because people, unfortunately, were too stupid to see it. They wouldn't believe it. No, they would. It would have caused chaos. This is a constitutional crisis that we're at right now. We have a nation. We have a nation whose most treasured documents were paraded with military and bands and shit in 1952 to be housed in the National Archives. And then it was put on the chopping block for someone to fucking buy it. And not only that, for the past two decades, you have an agency that was created by the Patriot Act, which is extremely unconstitutional, violates almost every single freedom you have on paper to not only do that, but take the last frontier, your voice. Of course, Bush would make that happen. He selected Barack Hussein Obama. They selected Hillary Clinton. They had no belief that she would lose. They did not expect some random person that very few people know the existence of and many deny the existence of to bust it up and get them screwed out of their plan. Trying to see where the trying to see where the plan is. Give me a second. I want to show you something. Can you see that? Can you see this? Okay. I'm going to read this out to you guys. Dear Secretary Kemp, dated January 2016. This letter is a follow-up to correspond to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission requesting modification of instructions relative to Georgia on the National Mail Voter Registration Form, federal form. You requested that the EAC revise the Georgia state-specific instructions by making the following changes. Revision of the mailing address, election division. Insertion of additional bullet after last bullet in the signature section. Signature. To register in Georgia, you must be a citizen of the United States. Be a legal resident of Georgia and the county which you wish to vote. Be 18 years old within six months after the day of registration. Be 18 years old to vote. Not be serving a sentence for having convicted of a felony. Not to be judicially determined to be mentally incompetent unless disability has been removed be found eligible to vote by supplying satisfactory evidence of U.S. citizenship. 
On August 15, 2013, acting, acting Executive Director Alice Miller opined that the EAC was authorized to approve the change related to the mail address and accordingly made that change to the Georgia instructions on the federal form. Her August 15, 2013 letter further opined that the EAC staff was constrained to defer the request regarding citizenship documentation until the EAC had a quorum of commissioners. So are you telling me that the EAC has had a consistent issue on having a quorum, therefore not working? So they're saying that they had a problem with actually doing their job because they had no quorum. And this is, you know, 2013. We had that again in 2016. Um, well, no, in 2018 as well um, that we know of. Now, uh, they further go on um, to discuss upon the requests. And it says, upon review of your request, I write to inform you that all of the changes requested to the state of Georgia instructions on the National Mail Voter Registration Form, federal form, have been made and are posted on the EAC website. If the changes do not accurately reflect your request, please notify me immediately. Sincerely, Brian Newby. Nice name. Kind of important, but not right now. We'll talk about him later. I'm going to show you the guy that took over your elections for 2020. Are you ready? And this is, this is why this isn't for the faint hearted. This isn't for the China's right. This is for actual people that are willing to fight. Let me see which one should give me a second. Give me a second. I just want to find the right one. All right, there it is. So, as you know, Dominion voting has had the ability to countersue people talking because they said something specific. I want to start with that first. They won a key decision because they said they're not the ones fixing the elections, which is true. It is true. They're not the ones fixing it. Others are. They're just the facilitators. To press forward in a major defamation case against Fox News after finding the network's coverage of election fraud may have been inaccurate. Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis writes in his ruling, quote, given that Fox apparently refused to report contrary evidence, including evidence from the Department of Justice, the complaints, uh, the complaints allegations support the reasonable inference that Fox intended to keep Dominion's side of the story out of the narrative. Now, that ruling is going to now allow Dominion to attempt to uncover extensive communications within Fox News and interview the network's top people under oath. This comes just days after the January 6th committee released text messages from some Fox News hosts to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows urging the former president to stop the Capitol insurrection. Joining us now, former Nixon White House counsel and CNN contributor John Dean and former federal prosecutor and CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin. Jeff, this is, is a big deal. It's 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 a very big deal, but it's not a surprise. You know, it's a basic principle of of libel law is that if 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 CNN puts Mr. A on the air and Mr. A says Mr. B is a child molester, Mr. B sues us. We can't say, oh, well, it was just Mr. A who said that we were just the transmission. That's what this case is about. Fox said, no, we didn't say that Dominion is corrupt. Our, our, the people we interviewed said that. The judge said, first of all, some of these people, Tucker Carlson, Maria Bartiromo, 
um, Lou Dobbs, uh, among others. Some of those did say that Dominion was corrupt, but by putting Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, making these outrageous false allegations on the air without allowing Dominion to refute them, that's libel. And that's what uh, Fox is going to have to defend. And I don't know how they're going to defend it. I think it's a very good case for the plaintiffs. John, legally, how difficult is it to prove individuals knew their statements were false or that they were intentionally leaving out relevant information? It's not easy. In fact, it's very surprising. Most of these cases get dismissed at this very early stage with a motion to dismiss. I think that probably handles overwhelming number of uh, defamation cases because the standard is very unique. They have to show actual malice that, that was employed, meaning that they either knew it was false and went ahead with it, or they did it with reckless disregard. They had some indication, but yet they still went ahead. And these, uh, this case has not been decided on any substance yet, just on the pleadings. And it, and it, it made the basic bar and got over that, which is going to be a nightmare for Fox. As but, Jeffrey says, they're but, going to now dig in deep and it's not going to be easy. But John, this case is the definition, so it appears, of reckless disregard. Most cases, you're right, gets dismissed because most competent Okay, Lubin Tubin, here's the thing. When companies like this have the whole backing of the federal government, when they know that it's a fix and they're simply the machine people, they can do whatever they want. And guess what? They're doing it with your money, through your counties, through your state elected officials, and you can't do shit. This is why they're doing this. This is why they're getting away with legislation. This is why, 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 why. And so when people decide that no more, then, 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 then that's it. It's game over for them. When people actually decide, I'm not doing this anymore. It's not happening anymore. Right. I say no, and it all stops now. It's all done. I mean, Fox, OAN, all these people can call the right culprits to the carpet, and yet they refuse to. Everyone circling back to their certifications, of course, right? Because it all starts at the beginning. You know, it's, it's, it's when you want to find a solution to a problem, you don't put a Band-Aid on it, right? You find the source, you find, you backtrack and you're like, where was the problem? Where can I see this problem? Where is it that we went wrong? Where is it that this happened? Where is it that this was allowed to happen? Remember the hanging chads. And then within a year, we had 9-11. Within a year, we had 9-11. Within one year that now... This tragedy, never let a tragedy go to waste. Two planes got in, but they demolished other buildings just because, right? Within a year. And then they quickly created these. Why? Couldn't the FBI, CIA, and all these people work independently? Why did they need Homeland Security that seems to be higher than almost any agency in the nation? Any agency, they oversee ICE, they oversee the FBI, they oversee the, uh, the CIA, they oversee, uh, you know, uh, the NSA, they oversee everybody and their mother. And a lot of the stuff about your elections, get this, is tucked into like pork, stuffed into an energy bill. 
<laughs> and then people are sitting there talking about just Dominion, just Heart Inner Civic, just ESNS, just, 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 when the paper trail is there and you can nail them. But instead, people want to be proud and make movies and talk about things. Like, I'm so furious that there's a documentary coming out talking about a guy that discovered that the certifications weren't worth anything or not even certified in 2021. Fuck you. This is how they, they're all about control rather than fixing the problem. And I can see the frustration that the president of the United States, President Donald J. Trump has done. The only and last president of the United States of America because their system was busted up. Who's the same people that were calling for a federal coup? The same people that lied that said they weren't connected to the internet. The same people that literally run your elections. The same people that through multi, multi-state sharing information have all your information. The same people. But you know, you wouldn't have the eyes and the ears to hear it now. Back then, it was all about other things. And this is why it's important that the Kraken be revealed because we have all that information. If if <laughs> if they're spying on you, it's also spying on them. And hello, I made the biggest mistake, but I guess it was important to keep myself safe. To render my username and password with that report that I did with Millie Weaver uh, defunct. After she put up that report, it was within a week, GCHQ and Global Group had taken down their websites, cleaned it. Thank God we have the evidence of that. Because if I had access to it, obviously, it would have pinged back on me. And considering the time that I lost, it was at a time of my life that was insane. I think, you know, it was intentional by God that I, 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 I do this so that, you know, because obviously they're going to investigate me every single night like they didn't. And they did. And they were like, okay, you're good. So I think God was protecting me, right? I can't listen or read or see the things that all these losers, you know, were talking about up until then. I could hear them. I could see them. I could tap into their phone if I wanted to. I could read their emails if I wanted to. I had all the metadata. This is why all these clowns use flip phones. (laughs) But you know, we created this tech with flip phones. So those are not that secure. We can triangulate with voice recognition almost instantly. You'll be very surprised at cafes what you hear. And it doesn't, and I don't need their phone. It's the person that's with them. And you know, no one's <laughs> smart watches, everything, ring doorbells, you name it. The thing is, the Department of Homeland Security has expanded, overexpanded their reach. And the question is why? They're really good agents there. I'm not going to lie and say that all of them are shit. But at the core of the agency, like, look at that. The EAC made it a stretch. Oh, yeah, elections are part of critical infrastructure and should be housed under the Patriot Act because they hold elections in county buildings and in schools, which is DHS, um, you know, whatever. But you want to see who is responsible. So I did tell you that there was a phone call um, January 5th through the 7th. There were a few, but one of them on the 6th. And what's really weird is, is that 
uh, you know, some may say that the visit was because this person, um, you know, was nominated as a survivor. So during transition, if something happened to Barack Hussein Obama, he would be hidden away and he would be next in line to be president. And so there was an unknown voice. Here's the thing. So as I'm, as I'm sitting doing work on my case, right? which I thought was being done by someone else, but they weren't, hence why they're not. Uh, they were all full of shit. As I was doing work on my case, I was digging into it, and I heard the voice, and I was like, holy shit, that's the dude I heard. So it was him, Comey, Obama, Brennan, it, Susan Rice had just fucking ended, right? S- Justice Roberts was just gone and this guy came in and he, it's because he had just deployed it. What did he deploy? Well, let's listen to him first. What he has to say about the January 6th hearings first. Giuliani in 1988. Um, What struck me about last night's hearing, the opening statements of the, the chair and the vice chair they were not shy. They, they're privy to all the evidence. We got a glimpse of it last night, but they're privy to all the evidence. And they all but said that Donald Trump is guilty of being involved in an effort at a coup to overthrow our government. Um, I thought it was significant that they seem to be building a case uh, that he somehow joined the uh, seditious conspiracy, that he may be guilty of violating the insurrection statute. Right. The insurrection statute punishes insurrection, but it also punishes those who give aid and comfort thereto. And then there was the use of the word fraud. Uh, wire fraud is a, is a tool uh, very familiar to federal prosecutors. Mail and wire fraud is punishable. It's a felony. Essentially, it criminalizes false statements uh, in pursuit of achieving a goal. And so the way I, last night sounded very much like the opening statement of a federal prosecutor at a federal criminal trial. Mm -hmm. I suspect when this is all over, the real Department of Justice is going to be under huge pressure to do something with this evidence. Yeah. Thanks for watching our YouTube. All right. So, Johnson. Barack Hussein Obama loves Johnsons. But Johnson, let me tell you about this clown. Do you know what he did on January 6, 2017? I want you to take a fucking wild gaze. Being part of the transition team that I've been talking about for forever. And this is a missing link. And I just couldn't believe it. And I was like, oh, it's the 4th of July. You know, I should talk with my friends on the 4th of July and tell them we found it. Because it all came back to this. Like, I was giving documents to Millie and Gavin. And I was like, all right, this is part of the transition team. This is where they're going to fix it. This is, they're so pissed. So they had a plan. We're going to nail Flint. They had a plan. We're going to do this whole Khashoggi shit and fucking nail it on Flint. We have a plan. We're going to do this. We have a plan. We're going to do that. We activated Roger Stone. We did that. We failed. We activated this. We planted all these people. We did this. But back up, just in case we need to take hold of the elections. Guess what he fucking created on that day? Yeah, you're right. Siza. Fucking Siza. 
Siza. Siza was part of Barack Hussein Obama's transition plan. Siza, the one that is sitting on the Halderman report. Siza, that is telling you that the machines aren't connected to the internet. Siza, the one that was found, well, in Homeland Security in 2016. There was no Siza then. Huh? And then suddenly a website goes up on March. 2017 on the Department of Homeland Security. And it's like, fuck you. The people need to know this. And it's really important. See, everyone is running around trying to figure out what happened. Uh, and then, you know, they're missing the two most powerful agencies that orchestrated this whole shit. So I want to remind you of those two fake DHS agents. Do you remember them? Uh, the the Haider Shah Ali and Arian Tasberde they were arrested for imp- uh, being imposters. Fe- uh, Department of Homeland Security people uh, they claimed to be involved in an investigation with the January sixth Capitol. They were renting a bunch of apartments, right? And they were just lending them out, right? And all this stuff, right? Well, I want to show you um, where is it? A video. Of this guy. Um, shoot, is it there? Damn. Uh, I don't have it. Hold on. I do have the article, so let's share that. Give me a second. I could have sworn I had the video. Damn it. All right. So the article here in the Daily Mail says how they posed, you know, as agents and they were giving gifts to people and giving Jill Biden Secret Service detail luxury D.C. building where they lived and partied. Now, I'll tell you what, uh, these people... Um, you know, had no money. They didn't rent the apartment. They were in debt 222000 But then it makes you wonder, why did the building guy not sue them for not paying their rent? But I guess it happened during COVID, so he couldn't. So it was like, fuck. So they had these incredible, um, you know, stories. I found the video. Now, there's this lawyer that's breaking down the claim of one of them. And I want you guys um, to see this. It's It's pretty fascinating. But I want you to see how the public defender of one of the guys is actually fighting this. And this is important because I wanted remember when Bannon was arrested being chased down by a postal service agent and nobody fucking said what's going on. So I just showed you the real face of Homeland Security and when when it was created. Now, what you need to do, right, is um, uh, think of this agency. Take a listen to this. We have have another attempt to get the fake DHS agents out of federal custody. This one coming from Michelle M. Peterson representing Arian Tahazurzadeh. We're calling him Tazzy here on this channel. And she is now making the argument that there's no basis to keep him in custody. Remember, he's one of two. It is Mr. Tazzy. And we also have Hader Ali. Hader Ali was a co-defendant or is a co-defendant. And we're now learning that both of these guys are no longer partners. They're now pointing their fingers at each other. We covered Ali's attempt to get out of custody in a separate video because it's a big, long 17-page motion. We wanted to make sure we're giving both of these defendants the details, the time and attention that each of their cases deserves. And so go check out that video if you want to see what's going on with Hater Ali. He's got four family members writing in to vouch for him saying, keeping him in detention. And one of those reasons is because if you let him out, he's going to be a danger to the community. But there's no evidence here that you can't craft some other resolution, some other release conditions that would also protect 
the community, also reach the goals of the justice system. It's not just about you know community safety, it's also making sure that person shows back up to court. And so there are things we can do to make sure that all of this works well. We don't just have to use detention. And because in this country, we believe that people have the presumption of innocence and they deserve due process, we'd like to default to letting them out until there is basically no nothing we can do but to keep them in. And so this public defender, Ms. Peterson, is saying, Tazzy is eligible for placement into HISP and his father would be an appropriate third-party custodian. We're going to hear from him. He actually called into the court proceeding. We'll cover that in a separate video. Appropriate conditions would include a restriction that he do not does not possess any firearms or ammo. He could be put on monitoring, on location monitoring. He could stay away from the location where the search warrant was executed. He could reside with his father. He could stay within 50 miles of a radius here avoid all contact. He could be precluded from talking to his co-defendant or anybody who might be a victim except through counsel. He could do all these things. He could communicate with pretrial services as directed and we could let him out. A police officer and this is what I do. So here it's a felony. Somebody without any weapon or any violence and you can just say, hey, I happen to be a police officer and this is what I do. So here it's a felony, but it's not a violent felony. It's not like aggravated assault or aggravated robbery or you know something involving a, an actual weapon. So they're saying if they want to make an allegation of dangerousness here, they're free to do that. Go ahead and do it, but they haven't done it. So they're saying that's not justification to keep them out. Writes, even if a detention hearing is warranted when imposing a condition, the court must use the least restrictive conditions. You can't just automatically default to incarceration. What is the least restrictive condition? This defense lawyer gave us a whole list of them. Says there's no presumption here that would presume to keep this person in custody. Rather, the presumption here is the defendant will be released pending trial unless the government can prove otherwise. Saying that the detention must be the only means by which community safety can be assured. 18 U.S. Code 3142 F2B also cite some case law in determining whether the government has defeated this presumption for release, saying that if all things are equal, the law says we got to let these guys out, goes through the same different four factors that we talked about in the hater Ali motion. Let's run through them again as they apply to Tazzy because it's a separate case. Here, the nature and circumstances of the offense charged. As it applies to Tazzy, we get a maximum of three years and a guideline range of zero to six months. So for as serious as the government says this whole thing is, saying that they were palling around with Secret Service agents who were protecting the White House and literally Jill Biden, saying that they were sending stuff and materials to other agents trying to compromise them so that they would secrete evidence, saying that they might have ties to foreign intelligence, all this stuff, the only what they've been charged with in the criminal complaint is pretty Meyer. Here, statutory maximum three years, guidelines, zero to six months. And if you've got no prior criminal record, as uh, Ali has, his defense attorney is arguing for probation. Tazzy clearly did not knowingly violate the law. Had he known this, there's no evidence that he knew about the law. That's kind of, you know, they're not going to care about that. In fact, the evidence that he did is not striking. He registered in D.C., sought to abide by the law. This is evidence that he will abide by the court-imposed obligations. This goes forward, says, moreover, the court surmised there was no large sum of money involved. The rent on the apartments was not paid by anyone, and a default judgment was entered, meaning that they were sort of telling the people who were living at these penthouses that rent was covered, but it turns out it wasn't covered. 
And so that's kind of a big deal, right? What if you're, uh, one, one of your, one of your thoughts here is that these two are being funded by foreign intelligence. They've got unlimited coffers. They're buying everybody weapons. They are sending Glocks and, you know, assault rifles and buying people safes and sending cigars through the mail. Sorry about that. So Tishman Spare, who is that? Who is that? I had muted and I forgot. Who is Tishman Spare? This landlord that allowed them to live rent free for five apartments, luxury apartments. And wanted a judgment for unpaid rent. So these guys had free apartments that they never paid for, right? And now you're going to see loser attorneys that want to pretend they're patriots use this show to formulate arguments. I see it. Remember, I've got an oracle. (laughs) So here's the deal. The question is, Homeland Security did this. They apparently were DHS agents. Are you getting my drift now? Are you getting my drift? Can you see how that goes? Hmm. So weird. So weird, isn't it? How you're going to see losers see this and talk about taking things, but that's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to think you're going to use this and do this because the minute you see them use the arguments that were in those cases and you see new J6 support, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Exactly. Because this is all law they could have used. This has been done before, but this is how we suss them out. See, that's the genius of President Trump, though. President Trump is a freaking genius. He lets them flush themselves out. I think I needed to take a play from his book just so that the people can see it. Just so that the people can see it. But listen to this. Where's that that money money coming coming from? from? They they actually don't have a, a, a contract with apparently anybody, right? They don't work the USSP, which was their LLC, or at least Tassie's LLC, not have any contracts uh, as far as we know with anybody. So where's the money coming from? Or maybe there was no money because they defaulted on all of these rent payments. According to the complaint, they said the amount of the default was $223,000. The company signed a lease in 2020, but never paid any rent. Tishman Speyer, landlord of the men accused of impersonating these agents, won a $222,000 judgment for unpaid rent. Rent was for five apartments they lived in and loaned out to Secret Service agents. So they weren't paying it. And why did this, why did this apartment complex just let them live there for a year and rack up $222,000 in unpaid rent? I mean, if you get a default judgment, right, that's sort of settling a contract. But don't you evict the people who are in your property, get them out of there so that you can fill it with paying tenants. The default judgment against the United States Special Police, a company connected, was entered in Superior Court in Washington in January. So this whole thing is like crumbling down around them. We go to the next factor, the weight of the evidence against Tazzy. According to the proffer of the government, the evidence that Tazzy held himself out as a law enforcement officer is not insignificant, especially in light of how cooperative he was upon his arrest, waived his Miranda rights, talked to them for five and a half hours while handcuffed, not the actions of someone who's a danger to the community or likely to obstruct justice. And whether the government can prove the elements of the offense is another matter. Goes through, gives us some citations to the Ninth Circuit. History and characteristics of this defendant, he does have misdemeanor convictions over a decade-old incarceration of one month total, actively sought to obey the law, registered his firearm, no prior convictions, 40 years old. 
had a license to operate as a special police officer and a private detective, but it then sort of expired. This was, as he acknowledged in his statement, an embarrassing misrepresentation that got out of control. So he's just embarrassed. That's how this whole thing started. You know, it's like you say that you're, you know, I'm really good at that. And they like, no, and he should be released. So asking that this whole thing is uh, sort of uh, remodified and his detention is ordered. Tazzy said, I'm a licensed SPO and a private detective. Tazzy said, I'm in the process of closing the business down, largely due to the struggles that experienced through the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a hard one. Inspector Guard asked Tazzy if he knew Ali, and if he did so, how did he know Ali? Tazzy said, yeah, I knew Ali well. I sponsored him to receive his PD license, his private detective license in D.C. Guard said, you know, are you or somebody, have you or have you ever been a Department of Homeland Security or an HSI special agent? Tazzy said, no, no. I run an SPO company that I'm about to close down. Why? Inspector Guard informed Tazzy that Ali represented that USSP was part of DHS and said that Tazzy is a special agent for Homeland Security. Inspector Guard asked Tazzy if he or USSP holds any contracts with DHS. Tazzy said, no, I don't. He explained he previously bid on contracts for background investigative work with DC Homeland, but never held a contract. Hmm. So the question, of course, is this all serious? Was he just in over his head? Is he just winding all this down? Was he really going to close it down? Was he telling the inspector he was going to close it down just so the inspector goes away? Said, yeah, I knew Ali due to the struggle. That he was an investigator for the U.S. Pause it on that screen and I want you to pay attention. So now I'm introducing you to the other agency. The one that was pretty much part of the 2000 mules part. We have the electronic fraud, then we have the manual fraud. Remember who busted down Bannon? It was the United States Postal Agent. And the U.S. Postal Agents were the ones that were interviewing these guys. Wait. Oh, wait. Hold on. They were impersonating DHS, so then the Postal Service came in Almost like they're special police that's outside of Homeland Security. And, and, and anyway, another thing I just wanted to point out, D.C. Homeland Division. What? So I'm taking it back so that you can see. So we had the Postal Service allow the fraud uh, to be substantiated from the uh, cyber side with tangible evidence, right? So... Let's go into that. Let's see, you know, what um, the U.S. Postal Agent Services have to say. Oh, you didn't know they exist? Well, so weird because that's who arrested Bannon. So weird. That's who's been interviewing these guys that were posing DHS agents. So weird that postal workers were the only ones that didn't have to get vaccinated. So weird that it was mail-in drop-in ballots of the U.S. Postal Service that were in charge of this. So freaking weird. I didn't want to come here. But I couldn't ask Mrs. Washburn to drive all the way back into town just to hear more bad news. Her daughter suggested meeting them halfway. And this place was it. 
the stock they sold you is basically worthless. Either the companies don't exist or they've never heard of Lowe and Michael's investments. Oh, I should have known better. I started getting these investment offers in the mail shortly after my husband died. Yes, I should have done my due diligence before sending them any money at all. These crooks are very slick, Mrs. Washburn. They target seniors with mailing lists, lottery sweepstakes. Once they get your information, they don't give up. Have you arrested these criminals yet? I mean, even if you can't recover any of my money, I would like the satisfaction of knowing that they're going to pay for their actions. It's a bit more complicated than that. Lowen Michaels is what we call a boiler room. It's basically a bank of phones and con men. They've set up shop in Canada to make it harder to prosecute. It would be very helpful if we could get access to your phone records. Sure, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, however, I have caller ID on all the phones at home, and I don't remember ever seeing a call that came from outside the country. Usually the calls are routed through switchers here in the U.S. Or they use prepaid cell phones or calling cards. They do the same with the mail, so you never see foreign postmarks. I see how clever of them. My husband always handled all of our investments. Perhaps I should have hired somebody after... The investments were so small, especially in the beginning, and I, I guess I wanted to think that I could do it on my own. It's difficult watching someone when they realize that they've been taken. I could imagine Doris Washburn sitting alone in her house, just starting to realize that her husband was really gone. Then the phone rings, and it's a nice young man asking if she'd had a chance to read the prospectus that she'd received in the mail. She probably explained that she hadn't had time since her husband had only recently passed away. The con man would have then stopped talking about investments altogether. He'd spin some story about losing his aunt or sister. They might have talked for an hour or more without him ever once asking for money. By the time they'd hung up, Doris Washburn might have thought she'd made a new friend. The next time he called, she'd be happy to make a small investment. Is there anything else you can recall that might help us? Did you speak to anyone else besides Matthew Raines? Yes, I spoke to his supervisor on at least two occasions. And if anything, was even more charming than Mr. Raines. I remember he always asked how my daughter was holding up. Mom, I'll get the car. Oh, oh all right, honey. I believe his first name was... Um... So that's one of their promotional videos of, hey, you're joining us. But you know what's interesting? We should find out the history of this. Now, there's not a lot about it because not a lot of people believe that, you know, your postman or postwoman who has the most set job ever with the highest paying, <laughs> right? And didn't have to get the vaccine either. Um, you know, how they started. Let's take a look back at the first 245 years. I kid you not. That's what the title is. So that's really bizarre, isn't it? Benjamin Franklin is known for a lot of things. He was a printer, ran a newspaper, was a postmaster, and of course, we can all picture him flying a kite. He was a statesman and one of the founding fathers of our country. But what you probably didn't know was that Franklin was responsible for starting the nation's first and oldest federal law enforcement agency, the United States Postal Inspection Service. Let's take a look at the history of this great organization. 
Way back in 1737, when Franklin was the postmaster at Philadelphia, he was assigned the additional duties of regulating the several post offices and bringing the officers to account. This was the forerunner of the duties of a postal inspector. When Franklin became the first postmaster general under the Continental Congress, he couldn't take care of his duty anymore. So he appointed William Goddard as the first surveyor of the new American Postal Service. August 7, 1775, the earliest reported date Goddard served as surveyor, is established as the birth date of the Postal Inspection Service. Surveyors became the first postal inspectors and also began investigating thefts of mail or postal funds, often by a writer, innkeeper, or other person entrusted with the mail. In 1792, postal crimes were considered serious offenses, and Congress imposed the death penalty for stealing mail. In 1801, the title of surveyor was changed to special agent. There were only about three special agents at this time, and one of them was Noah Webster. You may have heard of him. He compiled a dictionary. During the War of 1812, special agents observed and reported on movements of the British fleet on the Potomac River. In 1835, Preston S. Lawborough was placed in charge of a new investigative branch of the Post Office Department, the Office of Instructions and Mail Depredations. He is considered to be the first chief postal inspector. In the 1840s, special agents were sent to Texas, Oregon, and California to oversee the establishment of new mail services. 1853. As the country expanded westward, the number of special agents grew to 18. Assigned to specific territories, they reported on the conditions of steamboats, horses, stagecoaches, railroads, and other conveyances used to transport the mail. During the Civil War, David B. Parker supervised the transportation and delivery of mail to Union troops. Parker, who became a special agent and later chief inspector, reestablished mail service as Southern states returned to the Union. In 1861, Alan Pinkerton, another post office special agent, became Lincoln's head of security and was instrumental in founding the U.S. Secret Service. After the Civil War, Congress enacted two major statutes that postal inspectors use to this day. First was the mail fraud statute in 1872, which was used to combat a rash of swindles by mail that erupted after the Civil War. Then in 1873, the postal obscenity statute came into existence based on the urging of Special Agent Anthony Comstock. By 1873, there were 63 special agents who were assigned to six divisions, each headed up by a special agent in charge. 1880 marked another title change. Special agents became known as post office inspectors after a law was passed by Congress. The change was to differentiate the federal postal agents from the multitude of other special agents employed by railway and stagecoach companies. Inspectors investigated postal crimes across the vast open spaces of the West. In 1881, the notorious Billy the Kid was interviewed by inspectors in connection with a mail robbery in Santa Fe, New Mexico. 1897, 100 inspectors. 
The gold rush of the late 1800s brought thousands of fortune seekers to the Alaska Territory. 1898. Post Office Inspector John Clum was appointed as Special Commissioner and established post offices throughout the Alaska Territory. Eight years earlier, as a newspaper man in Tombstone, Arizona, and a friend of Wyatt Earp, Clum witnessed the gunfight at the OK Corral and was the first to report on it. In 1900, post office inspectors seemed to be everywhere. Inspectors investigated postal fraud in Cuba, which was under U.S. military jurisdiction, and they traveled to Puerto Rico and Hawaii to supervise the start of mail service in these new U.S. territories. Tragedy struck the agency in 1908. Post office inspector Charles Fitzgerald was gunned down in Clinton, Mississippi, becoming the first inspector killed in the line of duty. Since then, 13 additional inspection service personnel have lost their lives in the line of duty. In 1909, inspectors investigated the Black Hand, a secret society of criminals who extorted money from Italian immigrants by sending them threatening letters. Inspector Frank Oldfield arrested 14 members who were all convicted. 1913. 400 inspectors. 1916, the last known robbery of a horse-drawn mail wagon happened in Nevada and was investigated and solved by post office inspectors. The bandits who stole $3,000 from the mail and murdered the driver were arrested within five days. The reputation of the inspectors was growing. In 1919, Inspector Elmer Irie was selected as the chief of the newly created Internal Revenue Service Intelligence Unit. He and five other former inspectors led the investigation of Chicago mobster Al Capone. The Roaring Twenties were indeed roaring for the post office inspectors. Post office inspectors became the first federal law enforcement officers to carry the Thompson submachine gun, the Tommy gun, to combat the rash of mail train robberies. 1920. Charles Ponzi, the father of the illegal pyramid scheme that carried his name, was investigated by inspectors who helped convict him. Ponzi built millions of dollars from the public in a scheme that falsely promised a 50% return on investments. 1921. Gerald Chapman, who became the first public enemy number one, and Dutch Anderson, robbed a U.S. mail truck of over $2 million in New York City, making it the largest robbery of the time. Inspectors captured the two robbers. Convicted, they each received 25-year sentences, but escaped from a federal prison in Atlanta in 1923. Chapman was eventually hanged, and Anderson was killed in a shootout. During the 20s, two of the most notorious mail train robberies occurred the botched robbery in the Siskiyou Mountains of Oregon by the Dutremont brothers in 1923 and a well-planned heist at Roundout, Illinois in 1924. Inspectors caught up with the Dutremont brothers after a three-and-a-half-year worldwide manhunt. All three were convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Inspectors doggedly tracked down the Newton boys from the Roundout robbery. All were convicted. There was no let-up in activity for post office inspectors during the 30s. In 1936, 
Public Enemy Number One, Alvin Carpus, was arrested by inspectors and local police for the spectacular machine gun holdup of a mail train in Garrettsville, Ohio, 1937. The airship Hindenburg, the largest dirigible ever built, burst into flames upon touching its mooring mass in Lakehurst, New Jersey. Post office inspectors responded and recovered mail that was on board. Between 1937 and 1941, inspectors planned the movement and protection of over $15 billion of gold from New York to Fort Knox. More than 500 railroad cars carried the gold by registered mail. 1939, with more than 600 post office inspectors on the rolls, a separate bureau of the chief inspector was established. The 40s brought more change and post office inspectors were right in the thick of it. 1940, the first of five forensic laboratories was established in Washington, D.C. During World War II, 247 inspectors serving in the military services organized a mail system for the troops. The Army Post Offices, called APOs, and the Fleet Post Offices, or FPOs. The system was so effective that what they established still remains as today's military mail system. 1944. Post Office Inspector Robert Moon developed the idea for the Zone Improvement Program, the zip code, but it took 20 years to get that implemented. In 1947, Jesse M. Donaldson became the first Chief Postal Inspector to be appointed Postmaster General. Another title change came about in 1954. Post office inspector was changed to postal inspector to reflect the relationship to all phases of postal services and the U.S. mail instead of only to post offices. Over the years, inspectors showed their ability to adapt to investigating postal crimes and providing security on all types of conveyances. Whether it was on stagecoaches, steamships or trains, inspectors met the challenges and solved the crimes. But the 1950s opened up a new area of concern, airplanes. In 1955, the first mail bomb exploded on board an aircraft and established the need for inspectors to be specially trained in bomb investigations. 1958, owners of the Hope Diamond sent the priceless jewel to the Smithsonian Institution by U.S. mail. Postal inspectors ensured that the gem arrived safely at its destination. Here's a historical factoid you probably didn't know. In 1963, Postal Inspector Harry Holmes interviewed Lee Harvey Oswald about the mail-order rifle used to assassinate President John F. Kennedy. Minutes later, Oswald was gunned down by Jack Ruby. The 1970s were a decade of first and of change. With the Postal Reorganization Act of 1970, the Bureau of Chief Postal Inspector became the United States Postal Inspection Service. 1970, the Security Force, the uniform branch of the Postal Inspection Service, was formed, primarily responsible for protecting people and property and keeping the peace on postal property. Postal police officers also respond to natural and man-made disasters. In 1971, the Postal Inspection Service became one of the first federal law enforcement agencies to hire female agents. 1972. 
postal inspectors and crime lab forensic scientists proved that a handwritten note giving author Clifford Irving exclusive rights to the Howard Hughes biography was a fraud. Also in 1972, 200 investigative aides, formally detailed to the inspection service, became special investigators. An investigative aide helped protect the 601 carat Lesotho diamond mill from Europe to New York. Later in the decade, they became postal inspectors. A tragedy befell the postal police in 1981. Postal police officer Michael Healy was shot and killed during a robbery attempt at the Chicago main post office. His shield number 3972 is used on all PPO branding in his memory. 1984, the passage of the Child Protection Act gave postal inspectors additional powers to focus on child pornography distributors and their customers. Since 1984, postal inspectors have arrested thousands of child molesters and pornographers. 1987, postal inspectors arrested Ivan Bosky and Michael Milken as part of a widespread insider trading case on Wall Street. 1989, televangelist Jim Baker, co-founder of the Praise the Lord Club, was arrested by postal inspectors for mail fraud. Baker scammed believers by using $178 million of their mailed-in money for personal gain. His sentence? 45 years in prison. 1991. In Operation Bogart, postal inspectors broke up a worldwide billion-dollar art fraud ring that marketed bogus prints purported to be signed by such renowned artists as Salvador Dali, Joan Miro, and Pablo Picasso. From 1978 to 1996, Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, mailed and placed bombs throughout the country, killing three and injuring 23. Postal inspectors played an integral role on the task force that made the arrests, marking the end of one of the largest and most extensive criminal manhunts in modern history. 1998, Showtime Network aired The Inspectors the first movie about postal inspectors since the 1951 classic, Appointment with Danger. The movie was based on the 1991 Chugiak, Alaska mailbox. 2000. The new millennium brought new challenges. It opened with a new postal inspection service seal designed to represent all inspection service employees. But in 2001, the world changed forever. One month after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, for the first time in our nation's history, the mail was used in a biohazard attack. Letters containing anthrax were mailed to media and congressional representatives, resulting in the deaths of two postal employees, three citizens, and sickening 17 others, including a postal inspector. After a nine-year investigation with the FBI, a suspect was identified but committed suicide before charges were brought. Inspectors responded to thousands of white powder incidents over the ensuing years. The mailings resulted in postal inspectors being trained in emergency responses to hazardous items in the mail. Whether it's a man-made disaster or a natural disaster, inspection service personnel respond. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina the most destructive natural disaster in U.S. history, hit the Gulf Coast, destroying 17 post offices 
in displacing 4,000 postal employees. Nearly 300 inspection service personnel responded, accounting for all employees and restoring service. The decade starting in 2010 showed an increased focus on trafficking of illegal narcotics by mail. From 2010 through 2019, inspectors arrested more than 19,000 individuals for drug trafficking through the mail, seizing more than $180 million in illegal drug proceeds. Almost 100 years after Charles Ponzi scammed people out of their money, another fraudster tried it again. For 20 years, Alan Stanford lured investors to buy certificates of deposit in his offshore bank with the promise of high returns. Postal inspectors revealed a $7 billion Ponzi scheme, arrested the mastermind of the scheme, and seized his proceeds. In 2012, Stanford was sentenced to 110 years in prison. Despite high-profile investigations, the agency was still low-profile when it came to publicity. No longer willing to be called the silent service, the inspection service finally started to get some recognition. They were featured in a new exhibit called Behind the Badge that opened in 2014 at the Smithsonian Institution's National Postal Museum. In 2015, the CBS network premiered The Inspectors, a half-hour drama series about the inspection service. The show ran for four seasons, averaging 60 million viewers per season and capturing two daytime Emmys. 2017. An investigation by postal inspectors in the Department of Justice led to Western Union and MoneyGram agreeing to return almost $600 million to victims of fraudulent foreign lottery, sweepstakes, online dating, and advance fee schemes. In 2018, mail bombs were sent to 16 high-profile political figures, news media agencies, and actors. Within days of the first mailing, Cesar Sayak was identified by postal inspectors and arrested. He was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. 80 years after the first crime lab was established, forensic scientists and technical specialists are now located at the National Forensic Laboratory at Dulles, Virginia, and at 22 digital evidence locations around the United States. They play key roles in identifying, apprehending, prosecuting, and convicting individuals responsible for postal crimes. 2020 brought the first global pandemic in 100 years and nationwide civil unrest. Despite the dangers, Postal Inspection Service personnel provided security for postal employees and conducted investigations to protect Americans from pandemic scams. And that's a look back at the first 245 years of America's first federal law enforcement agency. The men and women who make up today's Postal Inspection Service continue the tradition of the ones who laid the foundation. Postal Inspection Service personnel continue to protect the Postal Service, its employees, and its customers from criminal attack and the nation's mail from criminal misuse. Their efforts ensure America's confidence in the mail. I don't know. I mean, after the election, see, they predate the Declaration of Independence. That's pretty fascinating, isn't it? So what's weird is 1776 is 245 years today. 1775 is 246 years today. This video was posted in 2021. Therefore, who's doing bad math? 
Now, considering all this information that you just learned in regards to two agencies, right? It's important for us to understand, uh, you know, how this happened. Now, a lot of people uh, forget um, who Dinesh D'Souza is. A, a lot of people just see him as this guy that makes documentaries and whatnot. He was targeted. And they he didn't have much of an empty slate for them to work at. But it's important that you see what he's telling you. That way you can see how people fight in their own capacities. This morning with the claim that he could pardon himself, himself. made news several days ago when he pardoned our next guest, conservative author and filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza, who tweeted recently about it, writing, quote, Obama and his stooges tried to extinguish my American dream and destroy my faith in America. Thank you at Real Donald Trump for fully restoring both. D'Souza pleaded guilty in 2014 to campaign finance fraud in connection with an illegal contribution to the 2012 Senate campaign of a person named Wendy Long. He was found to be using straw donors to circumvent campaign finance laws. He was sentenced to five years probation, which included the first eight months of that probation in a community confinement center. He had to submit to drug testing, community service. He was also required to participate in weekly therapeutic counseling by a licensed therapist. D'Souza was also fined $30,000. Dinesh D'Souza joins us now. Thanks so much for, for being with us. Appreciate it. I want to ask you about the uh, the tweet that you wrote. I'm just wondering, what proof do you have that the Obama administration tried to, in your words, extinguish your American dream? Because to be clear, you you did plead guilty. You said that you knew what you were doing was against the law, correct? Well, you have to look at the context of this, Anderson, because uh, let's remember that just weeks before all this went down, uh, I released uh, a movie in the theater, 2000 theaters, uh, about Obama. And in this movie, it wasn't just a critique of his policies. Uh, I was in Kenya at his family homestead. I interviewed his brother in a slum in Nairobi. It was a very emotionally damaging movie to Obama. And the president was very upset by it. And I'm not just speculating. I know this because he was regularly denouncing me on his own website, BarackObama.com. So... Um, when that happens, and then a few weeks later, the FBI comes banging on your door. Now, look, uh, I admit that I broke the law, and I admit, and I, in fact, I demand that I receive the same penalty as everyone else who does what I did. But the key point here is that no American in this country's history uh, has been prosecuted, let alone locked up, for doing what I did. Typically, these cases are prosecuted when there's corruption involved, some sort of quid pro quo. Uh, or somebody commits a, a repeat offense. They do it all the time. And uh, so for these reasons, I became suspicious that part of the reason I was being targeted was because I, um, I did something very upsetting to a very narcissistic president. Right. You, but in, I mean, you've said that this was in, in other interviews, you've said that this was selective prosecution in court. You never actually argued that. In fact, your attorneys filed a motion to dismiss the case, but not arguing selective prosecution. They were arguing complex legal uh, technicalities, and you offer no evidence in a discovery motion of selective prosecution. In fact, at your own sentencing hearing, I read, you said, I have never even said I'm being selectively prosecuted. I feared I was. So I feared I was being. So isn't it a little cute to argue selective prosecution on TV, but in court when you actually had the opportunity to not actually make that argument? Well, it, it would be if that was actually the full story. But the full story is actually this. Uh, my lawyer, Ben Braffman, went to the judge and asked him if we could have the uh, 
uh, the FBI file that had been compiled on me, as well as the government's file. Because obviously, if there had been collusion, let's say between Eric Holder and my prosecutor, Preet Bharara, it would be in that file. Now, the judge, who's a Clinton appointee judge, uh, said, absolutely not. I'm not turning over that file. So how is one going to find selective prosecution if the very uh, documents containing the evidence, well, the judge said, evidence, the, the judge said uh, the onus, denied, right. the judge said the onus, I mean, I read the transcript, the judge said the onus was on you to actually show any evidence, evidence at all of any kind of selective prosecution. And here's where he makes the same argument that I do. I went to court. I was like, this is crazy. They have like secret subpoenas and they're like selectively picking me out. And the judge was like, this isn't your auditorium. How the hell are you going to drag information into the light that they've classified, hid behind networks and deem it national security by Homeland Security standards? How the fuck do you bring it out? Do you break the law and do shit like leak things? Do you hack their systems to bring the truth into the light? No. You're patient. You throw them clowns and rainbows and then they dismiss it. And then you come back even stronger. See, they even miss the mark like, you know, of President Trump's real advisors. Ah, you think it's the generals. You think it's his caddy. Interesting that one, Dan Scabino. And like I said, if there was any time in my life that I had to choose one person to make sure that I don't die, that I don't, uh, you know, get caught up in something. And they say, pick one person to be the person that you stand behind, aside from God, okay? We're talking mortal. I would pick Dan Scavino, even though I don't know the man personally. I would totally be behind him because that's the thing. They will selectively come after you. They will selectively pick and prod because they can hide under the whatever of classified national security. Can't do this. I'm telling you, do you know how many this is? Uh, this is something that I, I'm measured on saying. There's an elected official that I've had conversations, many of them, but this specific one that I've had conversations with. And uh, this official says to me, all of us know, but it's like, how do you do that? Because then the world's not going to trust the government. Well, if you're not standing up for it and you're not showing that the government is running everything and they have no control over everything or over anything, it's simply an illusion. They control their money, their food, their housing, their freedom and their elections. Then how do you expect them to trust you? This is a good lesson for us to be able to rectify and increase transparency. I mean, fuck, on day one, Obama put concrete boots on transparency with his damn, you know, executive order. The first one, five minutes into his presidency that he signed that Robert Bauer from Perkins Coe had ready. So again, they're all rooting. We're rooting for you, Tori. This is really bad. And people are dropping like flies. People that claim to be all about America are not. People that say it, well, they can't. They're not soldiers. They're losers. They're opportunists. They just want titles and tiaras. They don't want to fight. Tori, how do we do this? You're asking me. You're the one that's in elected positions, you losers. Do something. 
we can't because they got this on me. They got this on that guy. They got this on him. Like, how do we do this? The, the, the government, this is a con, this is an actual constitutional crisis. How do we do this? How do we get the people rallied up when you see that the people themselves that are supposed to be rallying the people aren't rallying the people? Because they were never on your team. They were always about their stupid fucking plan because they thought they knew everything. Mm. But they've never been to the other languages division. See, this is the problem that it makes us so fucking vulnerable. Think about it. Our government is on the brink of collapse. So we have two choices. We fight with that risk that the rest of the world will be on our side or we fight with the risk that then enemies that wish to conquer the United States come in. Now, let me let me be straight with you and think about it this way. Think about it in your mind while we listen to the rest of what Dinesh says of how he couldn't bring the evidence because they hide it under classified and he didn't know where to find it. I know the filing cabinets, the agencies, the numbers, everything. I just have to name it. But the the question is, I want you to think, do you believe that if our government collapses, that Russia is going to come and invade us? Do you think that if our government collapses, that the, that the, that um, China is going to come and invade us, Iran, Saudi Arabia? Fuck No. They require us to exist in order to create they their people in check. The only people that you have to worry about invading you are the fucking corporations, uh, United Nations. But think about that for a second while you listen to him. And, and you did, did not, not do, do that. that. Well, let me offer some evidence now because actually we have information but in court, now. But in court is when it, in it mattered. I mean, why, why, on TV is one thing to do but, it. But Anderson, but that, my point is how can how. How would I show evidence of selective prosecution when the evidence is contained in documents that are in the possession of the FBI right, but, that I have no access to? But that to. didn't stop you from so going on TV and talking about now, it at the time. Because even during the, at the time, you were criticized by the judge for doing TV interviews before your sentencing hearing in which you were talking about selective prosecution. Right. At that time, I said I suspected it. And now I actually know it because, see, a congressional oversight committee now has my file and they've looked inside it and some of it is redacted. But right in there, for example, it says it highlighted red flags me as a conservative and a prominent critic of the Obama administration. Now, Anderson, if this was a routine case, Preet Bharara was on CNN, my prosecutor, saying recently, oh, this was a garden variety case handled just like any other case. But why are my politics highlighted in my FBI file? Wait, wait, uh, the reason I suspect, that's your evidence? Fact, I, I say, no, my evidence is that the FBI is signaling to the Justice Department, look, we got one for you. Here's a prominent critic of Obama. You need to know that this is your political enemy. You may want to go after this guy. But wait, wouldn't any complete FBI file, I mean, you are a prominent conservative. Wouldn't any complete FBI file describe who you are as being, uh, you know, a conservative or a critic of the Obama administration or, or whatever? Uh, Anderson, if somebody is compiling a file on somebody, and, and particularly a, a file of political sensitivity, and you want to be careful not to target people politically, why put this kind of information? So which that's is the only evidence you have of selective prosecution, sort of, that you were mentioned as uh, a critic no, of the Obama there's actually more. Well, not, there's actually more. The FBI decides early on, at the very beginning, to allocate $100,000 
to investigate my $20,000 case. Now, Anderson, look, recently, as you know, in the news, Rosie O'Donnell has been in the public and is, in fact, admitted to five times exceeding the campaign finance laws. But no hint of a prosecution, no discussion of it. In fact, Rosie said, if I gave too much, just give me the money back. Right, but, but and in but fact, you, that's how these look, cases have typically yeah. been treated. But you're an incredibly smart guy. You know uh, what Rosie O'Donnell did. She did not set up straw men to funnel money through to a candidate. She gave, you said five times, I think it was a total of like, a thousand dollars here or there over the, the limit, absolutely a violation, but far different than, I mean, what you did is you consciously, and correct me if I'm wrong, you consciously and intentionally, you went to some friends of yours, got them to donate $10,000 each to this candidate. Um, and then you immediately paid them back. And when they raised questions about it, you were like, oh, don't worry about it. So, the, I mean, that seems a lot more. I, I setting up. So in other words, he was set up. They had something on his friend and they set him up. They had something on his friend and set him up. Now, let's talk about these elections that everyone keeps telling you, get out and vote because you're going to win. You're going to totally win. Well, very unethical. Very, very unethical, isn't it? To tell people to go out and win on rigged machines like <laughs> and something's going to happen. It's all fucking rigged. And if they win... It's because they wanted them to win. Or it was impossible for them not to have them win. And that would raise too many questions. But for a few people, it's very important. But pay attention to this so you understand some of these endorsements and why they're happening. Obviously, we already said it's for President Trump to flex that he still owns the GOP because the only way you can destroy something is to own it first. You can't just go break a plate. You have to hold the plate first. So here's what, aside from the Democrats creating that organization where they have casting calls, they meet people, they see if they like them, and they're like, okay, you're running. We like your face. We're going to put a team of people and they'll tell you what to do. You're just there as a placeholder. Here's another strategy. Voters are heading to the polls in Colorado tomorrow. Multiple election deniers are on the ballot. They are vying for major positions. This is really important. And one of them is trying to administer the state's next presidential election, despite, okay, get ready for this, being barred from conducting her duties as a county elections chief after being indicted for allegedly tampering with state voting machines. Kyung Law is out front. Through the doors of this Grand Junction, Colorado hotel, just hours left before the primary... A crowd of activists gathered for what amounted to an election conspiracy forum hosted by My Pillow CEO Mike Lindell. <laughs> Featuring 2020 election denier and Republican Colorado Secretary of State candidate Tina Peters. Well, if they don't cheat, I'm in. Peters is not just a headliner here. She's made headlines across Colorado for the last year. Let go of me! Do not resist. This is Peters in February one part of a long saga of investigations she's faced with. A grand jury indicted Peters on multiple felony counts stemming from an election security breach at her Mesa County clerk's office. She's pleaded not guilty. As part of the investigation, confidential forensic images of voting machine hard drives and logins appeared on a QAnon-affiliated Telegram channel. She's now barred from overseeing the county's elections this year. Instead, I'm running to be your secretary of state to make that happen. She's on Tuesday's ballot, running to oversee elections in the whole state. I'm not an election conspiracy theorist, 
Um, I, when people came to me and I listened, I listened to the people. That's, that's how I, I got involved. What do you say to critics like your opponents who say that you're just simply raising lies? Oh, I like that one. Well, I want to run on being accurate, transparent, and a voice for the people. Also on the far-right Republican ticket, State Representative Ron Hanks running for the U.S. Senate. A 2020 election denier, Hanks on his campaign website proudly shares this image of himself in Washington on January 6th. In his campaign video, he wheels out a copier with the words Dominion Voting Machine, a widespread conspiracy lie that the machines were rigged against Donald Trump. I'm Ron Hanks, and I approve this message. What happens if Republicans do nominate these candidates? You can kiss this election goodbye. Election liars can't win in November in blue. Oh, leaning defund the GOP. Chairman Dick Wadhams. You'll why see Republicans why. Are now seeing this. How conservative is Ron Hanks? Millions of advertising dollars boosting Ron Hanks' conservative credentials. Paid for by the Democrats. Democratic Colorado is responsible for the content of this advertising. The Democrats spending this much money to nominate the weakest candidates is smart. I mean, it's, I think it's unethical, but I think it's smart. And frankly, it, it has moved voters. They've dumped so much money into this. Republican Senate candidate Joe O'Day, a businessman and supporter of abortion rights, is not just fighting Democrats boosting his competitor, but also millions to tear him down. He can't even get through a campaign event at a restaurant. Yep, there's my commercial. <laughs> without a negative ad running in the background. Why are they targeting you with so much cash? They know I can win. And they're going to have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to beat me in November. So they're trying to get me off the ballot right now. They're looking for somebody who can't win here in November. He's focused on an election that was stolen. and He's focused on things that don't matter to working Americans right now. And Kang, it's amazing. So, so he's tripling down. Uh, but, you know, the GOP, former GOP chairman, I thought was uh, very interesting when he told you uh, what Democrats are doing is unethical but smart. What do Democrats say in response? Well, the Democrats, in short, say, so what? What they're doing is not illegal. We reached out directly to the super PAC that is funding this effort, Democratic Colorado. And here's a statement that we got from the spokeswoman. She says, quote, we are an organization committed to ensuring that Colorado doesn't elect a Republican to the U.S. Senate. Both GOP candidates are totally out of step with our values and voters deserve to know the truth about who's running to represent them. But of course, Aaron, if you talk to the Republicans actually running in the Republican primary, they just simply call it meddling. Hmm. Aaron, of course, course. we're we're now all all familiar with. Kyung Law, thank you very much. much. Sounds very unethical, but necessary. So in the primary, who won? Was it the guy shooting down the Dominion machine or was it the GOP candidate? Can someone give me that answer? I'm going to wait in the texts to see it. I know there's a delay about 30 seconds. But I want to see the Colorado GOP. Did they get their candidate Joe in or did we get the Dominion shooter guy? I'm waiting to see. I know they stole it from Tina Peters. I just want to see. So the GOP candidate won. The shooter won. Which one? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. Come on, you guys. Who won it? Who won the nomination for GOP? Come on, you people. Seriously? Who got the Senate? Come on, people.
Are you serious? Like there's 3,000 people here. Colorado, who won the nomination? Who got on the ballot for the 2022? Uh, I'm still waiting. For U.S. Senate, who is the 22 Senate candidate? So Joe Odea, the GOP guy, won, correct? So that election was rigged too. Okay, so Joe Odea won. Do you think that the Republicans funded the other guy's thing or was it the, the... the, 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 do you think that the Democrats funded him or were, was it the Republicans telling the Democrats to do it? That's a real question. Real question. Do you really think the Democrats were funding him? Or was it the Republicans telling them to fund him so that he can't get elected? What's weird is, is that... Um, CBS News put out an article uh, on June, oh shoot, June 30th, they scrubbed it. They literally scrubbed it about the Colorado Senate. The fucking GOP, okay, I'm telling you this now. The GOP was the one that actually pushed to say that the Democrats were funding him. I hope you're paying attention. They will do nothing. Far short of what you might even imagine. To take control of everything. They will continue. To defraud the people. So that they can take control. Right now, they're trying to oust President Trump. And we've got people that are within our groups even that believe that, hey, if President Trump can't fix this, we should just get DeSantis and Flynn in. <laughs> like, whatever. Right? So many of them. But what they don't realize is that President Trump, to be officially back in office, represents us. Nobody else can represent the people other than President Trump. Because if they succeed in taking him out of the picture, then they succeed that you, your kids, your grandkids will never hold office again. So now we're back to the point of what do we do? This is a constitutional crisis. Well, remember what today is. Today is the day we declared independence 200 and 46 years ago. I don't know why they keep saying 245. So we declared that. What are we declaring today is the question. See, you will be betrayed by almost everyone because everybody has a price. They will play coy. They will start making excuses. But at the end of the day, it's down to a price. Down to a price. They ensured Tina Peters can't be on there. I mean, come on. She already knew that it was rigged. So that's it. That's it. So now how do we move forward? We eat our burgers. We have a beer. And we recoup. 
We ensure that we stand behind dragging the truth into the light. Kind of like Dinesh D'Souza, how the heck was he supposed to provide this information when it was hidden in documents that he's not allowed to access? And how can the court can warrant such a response? Well, you know, in my case, I can tell them what date to look at and to bring this information because it's pertinent. But this has to be one of the most civilized revolutions ever in history. We had the logistics and the cyber interference from the fourth unelected branch of government. And then we had another law enforcement arm that observed all of this happening. The question is, will they be the evidence required or are they part of it? These are two agencies that nobody looks at. We all talk about the marshals, the FBI, the police, but nobody talks about the actual role of Homeland Security. Nobody talks about the conversation Obama had with all these people and had Johnson fucking create SISA. It was part of his presidential transition team. Presidential transition team where they decided to take the Patriot Act, and then make it seem like your elections are part of critical infrastructure by word playing, by an agency that is nothing but a dummy center that certifies shit, but it doesn't mean shit, that doesn't certify shit, but then claims they certify it, even though they didn't certify because they didn't have employees. And yet we're all here talking about election fraud and we're not looking at it from a bigger perspective. It's not just now. It was always. And President Trump was the outlier because they can't see what's coming. People that don't exist don't literally, you know, pop out. They distract. They'll sit there and be complaining of rainbows and unicorns and I don't know, whatever. And they'll be hyper-focused in one area. So while they're fucking setting fires in one area, people that don't exist are operating in another. And uh, unfortunately, people don't see that. They don't. That's the problem. Unfortunately, people are not conditioned to see things like that. How do you see so much effort being on one sector? Like, I don't know, you know, you're, you're at home and you see someone busy. You see them online over the phone where you're creeping on them and everything. They're all busy on this. I don't know, making coffee, right? Get on the other end. They fucking baked a dozen of cupcakes. They brought them out. And you're like, when did you do that? I didn't see you. Yeah, that's what's up. You were too busy watching me make coffee. I did all this other shit. Ah. Hmm. I am very disappointed, but it was expected. I am very disheartened, but it was expected. If I knew, then why did I do it? Because I have faith in humanity. And I believe that people are innately good. Even though we're not. Human beings are not innately good. They are the people that create the most evil in this world. The most atrocious act on the planet happens at the hands of human beings. They are created from innate good. But that by no means doesn't mean that they are. And that's 
what sucks. That is what's terrible. By no means whatsoever does it mean that they're good. Just because the source is good doesn't mean that the production is, right? We know this. We know that very well. There's people that have been raised by really good people, loved, hugged, given so much love, and yet look at them, right? It's all about the you part, the actual person, and how they take it. It's, it's so, it's really sad. It's really, really sad. But I know that our independence is reliant on the people. And the people will get this done. God bless. You and I in a little toy shop Buy a bag of balloons With some money we've got and be ready for this week. Ninety nine red balloons go by.